Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by our good pals at Cooper's Board Store, Australia's largest in-stock board store. Located in Coffs Harbour, or you can shop online, Coops is shipping surfboards Australia-wide every day. 50-plus years, locally owned since 1969. There's boards for all levels and over a 1,000 sleds in stock. Yeah, Coffs might have the big banana. Yeah, Rusty Crow might live up the road. But if you're going to go to Coffs, go to Cooper's. And if you can't call in, get your stick sent to your front door at coopersboardstore.com.au. Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seldom tells. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones. Adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never told. Never told. These are the greatest stories never told. Hey, Swillians, welcome to The Greatest Stories Never Told. Today we venture back to 2009 and issue 301 of Surfing World magazine. It was a, uh, a good ish. Yeah, I was the editor. Matty G was the uh, associate editor slash art director. We had Reggae Ellis in there as the managing editor. And then it says here that we had a crustacean, no, a cetacean editor. That was Dave Rastovich, no surprise. But it was, uh, yeah, the mag was just sort of going from strength to strength at this stage and was uh, pretty much kicking ass. We just had our 300th issue celebration and a big party on the Goldie. And um, I remember handing this issue to Mark Warren and he freaked. He freaked on it. The bronze Aussie. He was uh, really stoked on the content because Surfing World had a big break from reporting on contests and stuff like that. I think Hugh McLeod and, and Bruce Channon had sort of turned their back on that whole side of surfing and, and gone pretty purist. But with Mick and Joel sort of leading the charge for world titles and, and indeed up against each other in a pretty classic world title race, we just thought, let's deep dive it. We had Tim Baker in Mick Fanning's camp. He was uh, Mick's biographer at the time. Sean Doherty was in Parco's camp. So we, we had just unprecedented access to the two heavyweight world title contenders in 2009. So we're going to have a quick chat with Sean Doherty, who's going to give us a little bit of insight into contextualizing this world title race. And this will be a part one. Part one will be Joel's story from the issue. We had uh, Tim Baker write Mick's story and Sean I wrote Joel's story. But part two will be fast forwarding to 2012 and the Parco world title winning year. So stay tuned for that in the not too distant future. But this will be part one. It is how the world title was won and lost, the Joel story. And we'll kick it off with a quick chat with Sean. Mate, um, I thought we'd do a part one and a part two of, of your two stories uh, yep. on the potty. The first one from 2009, where yep. it was the Mick Joel year. 
the unlosable world title. And then the second one, we'll uh, do a part two where we, we celebrate the actual world title. But firstly, like you were in Joel's camp for that 2009 campaign. And like, can you describe just the mood in camp, you know, pre-Bali? Just, just uh, you know, uh, working closely with Joel, seeing what he was putting in, the three out of five wins. Like, how was the mood, like, before Bali? Were you guys just all sort of caught up in that sort of infectious invincibility? Oh, he was going to win. <laughs> there was no other way. There was no other outcome that was even kind of considered at that point. Um, it just He just looked unbeatable. And... And and it was so the winds were so emphatic as well, and it just felt like the momentum and everything around it. I think from memory, Kelly was having a having an ordinary year as well mm. at the start, um, and it just looked one way traffic. Like Mick was having an off year too, I think, um, and it looked like because he just went bang bang straight up, and then just did not look troubled at mm. all, and the like the. You know, all those events that, you know, Jay Bay in the middle of the year, all these events that suited him as well. And it looked, um, yeah, you couldn't you couldn't see any other outcome apart from him winning, really. Yeah. Um, and, and the work and think, was done. Like, you know how they say believe in the process and the results come? I mean, it, it was not like he was just cruising and having, like, a golden run. Like, he was putting it in hardcore. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd worked his ass off to get to that point. And, um, yeah, you, you just felt like it kind of felt pretty written already, you know, that after losing so many times that it was finally going to come back around and it just felt like his time, you know. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it just kept building and building and, and all the way through. I think J-Bay was July uh, that year and he won that easily. Um, depends that I think Kai Otten said that it, he, um, Coyote might uh, dispute that. I think he, they had one heat that Coyote was blowing up about, but Otto was blowing up about a lot of heats. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, but he, but he romped J Bay, and that looked at that point, mate, it was like he was so far ahead. Mm. Um, yeah, that you couldn't even imagine the outcome where he couldn't win. And then, yeah, there you go. Look what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, like revisiting this story is incredible, mate. Like far out. You did such a great job capturing the, the delamination, you know, the, the full – it goes through those five, those five stages of, of trauma, doesn't it? It goes sort of denial, uh, anger, and then acceptance. And by the time he's finally accepted it, you know, it, it's not until – well after the Euro League, and we're talking another four or five comps, they're the four or five comps that Mick gets on a roll in. And he really didn't come good again until Hawaii. So how was that for you guys? Like, I know it's, uh, you write about it really beautifully in this story, which we'll, we'll hear in just a second, but how was it for you guys? Like, how was the, the inner circle, you know, for Mon, for you, for Wes, for Luke, for JS? Like, were people just fucking didn't know what to do, or how were you dealing with it? Uh, I, well, when he got, when he hurt his ankle, I don't think anyone really knew exactly how bad it was. Um, I, I remember the moment where I knew like he was in a bit of trouble is when I met him cause I flew over to, to, to California on the same flight as him. Mm. I met him at the airport and he walked in in a moon boot. I went, oh, fuck, this doesn't look real good. Nah. Um, 
and he's kind of hobbling around like an old goat. And I was going, holy shit, he's going to go and surf trestles uh, next week. Um, and at that point, you know, I think he was actually tossing up not surfing trestles and like skipping trestles and going straight. So I think France was the next one after that. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, once, you know, he went out straight out at trestles um, and then I think that's where it, it looked, you know, but even then he was still so far ahead. Um, but then I think when he went first heat at France as well, um, that's when, you know, that's when it kind of really sunk in. Oh, fuck, man. He could lose this because Mick won Fred, then went won France as well. Mm. And Well, Mick, won, and, Mick did a, a, a jolly. won three of the last five. So yeah, he got uh, Trestles, France, and then, and then he won Portugal, which was, that Portugal. was – that was the big rattler. But, um, I mean, I know Joel had a semi, but that Mundaka photo of Mon and Joel is – I actually got goosebumps thinking about it. It's probably one of the most defining images of what it means to lose a world title. You know, like you'll never see a more sort of vulnerable moment anywhere. Like yeah, I, Kelly totally. in the shower in, in Blue, uh, Blue Horizon is the closest thing I can think of, you know, where he's – McCoy kind of springs him, letting go of the emotion after the final. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's I think, one of those. Yeah. yeah, I think he knew he was toast at that point. Um, and yeah, I think he he lost to Drew Courtney. It was only like two foot Mundaka. It was it would have been horrible to have to surf with a bad ankle, mm. so tight and and. But he yeah lost there, and I think probably by that point he'd almost resigned himself to to it not happening. Um, then he got like the the you know almost a bit of a second chance when he made the semis at Portugal. So he stayed in it, but you know, Mick was a couple of heats ahead and um, I don't know, it still felt fairly inevitable. And I, I think by that stage he'd had a couple of months of it and he had the kids on the road with him as well. And I think he kind of, you know, cause he wasn't able to train or anything either. So he just spent heaps of time with the kids. Mm. And I think um, in a way that kind of just let him take his mind off it uh, to a degree. But then, yeah, then, then you know, the moments where he actually lost heats and he had to deal with all the shit again, um, and it wasn't pleasant. Um, it wasn't pleasant for the people around him, and it certainly wasn't pleasant for him. Nah. And, uh, you know, it just did have a sense of inevitability once it got close to the pipe that, that Mick was, was going to hold on. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, that bit of fun and games there because there was only a couple of hoops between them. And then they had like I think it was almost like a month and a half till pipe. Oh. So they had all this time for all this weird kind of psychological stuff to to kind of play out as well. In your story, there's this beautiful moment with Damo Hobgood, which I won't I won't actually say what is said in that moment because it's it's kind of like a peak. I don't know a shift in attitude in in, in the sort of the, the story of the year. But I do know that by the time Parko gets to Hawaii. He's a he's in, he's a re, he's reborn. He's a new surfer, so you know he turns up. He wins sunset, and yeah, sort of describe the mood around his title campaign by, you know, by the time he's come in as the three time champ at sunset. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, sunset clearly shifted things a little bit. You know, if in his own head, if nowhere else. Um, but it, you know, if by this stage the ankle was better too. You know, so he was, he was fully surfing back on it. Um, it wasn't – he had no twinge in it. He was ready to go. And I think he felt with Pipe, um, 
you know, although Mick's, Mick's obviously got chops out there, but um, that he, he felt that he's super comfortable, like, you know, like feels comfortable at Sunset, obviously that's his joint, but also felt that probably Pipe was a place he could do something as well. And it's so random the way, you know, you know how the how Pipe works. Now, this was back in the days as well when you had to face wild cards too mm. as top seeds. And, and you go into that lottery and you don't know who you're going to get. And Mick would have got one of those guys. And and Joel, you know, ultimately got one of those guys as well. He got Gavin Gillette. Mm. Um, so you, you just, you know, the, he definitely knew there was a better than average chance that something might happen. And he was just, he was kind of bouncing around. Um, but I think there was still some residual weight there mm. from from Europe and the rest of the year. It had just been that shitty few months that, and it, and it was, I think it, from memory, it was two, two heats behind Mick depending on where, what heats they were and where in the drawer it was. Um, so he, he had ground to make up, but, but you know, this, this was, you know, this, this was Mick again, you know, two, this was 2007 Mick all mm. over again. But mm. by this stage, he just, what Mick wasn't missing, you know, he, he would just turn up and show up and blow up every mm. time. It was just, mate, he was just mowing through heats. So, Fucking and then, yeah. And then it just come down, obviously, that, you know, fuck, of all people, Mick had, Mick had Dingo in the heat, and it was the heat after Joel and Gavin Gillette. So they're all in the water together. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, it was, mate. And and you just – and it was kind of, you know, watching up from the, the house up there and off the wall, it was – you're watching that heat, and it was just slow-motion car crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of felt it from the start, you know. I think from memory, Gavin Gillette – actually pulled into a bomb and almost came out of this backdoor thing that would have been a would have almost been a 10 mm. and and that he didn't he didn't make that but then made a couple of others and it was just Joel never got going and no. and you just and then you kind of worked it out you're going holy shit like Mick's out there at the moment and and Dingo's out there too and they're all together and he's going this is heavy mm. um and it was and obviously you know fuck man that the hour or so after he came in oh. was kind of heavier still. Um, it was, yeah, that was, you know, because um, he'd lost a, he'd lost a few world titles before, but a couple he'd been, you know, a, a long way behind, mm. and he'd never been in a head-to-head race like that. And and obviously he'd, ne- he'd never won like three events at the start of the year and been the clear favourite to win. So mm. to have it all finally officially kind of crumble. Um, yeah, it was pretty, yeah, mate, he kind of, he, de- he delaminated there for a, for an hour or so for sure. Mm. And, and did you think in the washout from that, that he had a world title in him? Did you, did you feel like that might've been his best shot or did you think that he could rebuild in the, oh, no, in, in was, the initial aftermath I'm talking about though? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was always confident that, cause I, I think if you look broadly at what was happening too, is like. And, and Kelly's the marker for this was that is it wasn't a young guy's game anymore. Mm. You know, it was because what we use it was oh nine. So Joel was what 28 mm. at that point. Mick was the same. So Kelly would have been early 30s. Like Kelly went on to win, you know, the year, the year after that. And, and you just felt that it was those guys were, were suddenly having a bit of an advantage as long as they could stay fit. Um, they were they were well and truly, you know, one of them was going to win every year. It felt mm. like, um, 
and and they did. So wow, wow. yeah, you know, I... and that's the way it played out. And and of course, yeah, he had, he had to wait, um, you know, another another couple of years for it to actually happen. And he had to watch Mick and Kelly win a, a bunch of stuff to get there, but but he did get it in the end. Mm. So. Well, well, I look forward to talking to you again uh, when we unleash part two, which will be the, not 20 years since his world title <laughs> win. I went through the tape last night. I was like, 20 years? No, fuck, it's only 10. But, yeah, I mean, that's going to be a fun story to revisit after this one because this one does leave you with a real a real sadness in, in, in your heart, man. Like, you know, yeah, there was never a more yeah. deserving world champion. There was never a guy who, as you say, had the whole surfing world backing him. And it was hard, not just for him and his immediate circle, but it was hard for anyone who loved surfing to see that go down. Um, yeah, yeah. I did actually, sorry, mate, I, I did forget the other thing that had to happen um, at the at that point where he lost and came in and, you know, was punching walls and, and all of that stuff, is that he had to go back down and cheer Mick up. Yeah. And, and that was... Um, and like that was a hard conversation to have. Like I had that with him, and it, and I said, mate, I said, as fucking shitty as this is going to be for you right now, um, you need to go back down there. Mm. And and he'd like he he you know because what's the heat half an hour? So there's only half an hour after it after it had happened. Um, yeah, and to his credit, mate, he he kind of he he kind of pulled it together and you know chucked some sunnies on and. And went down there and and cheered Mick up, yeah. which wow. you know, which, which was pretty. Yeah, it, you you lose the day, but you win in the long run, mate. Because everyone looks at you, goes, mate, that's fucking class right there. Yeah. So, but um, well, yeah, but I forgot about that actually. I, I always laugh though, Sean, just about the cosmic sort of you know forces that that put Mick, Joel, and Dingo all out in the water at the same time because. You know, as emotional as it was for Mick, as emotional as it was for Joel, <laughs> Dingo's the one who loves to cry. <laughs> he, must have come, he must have come in like, you know, have you ever put Glad Wrap or a, a, a chocolate wrapper in a microwave? I just imagine him at the end of that day just like all dehydrated, just in this little <laughs> scrunchy ball without a single tear left, the poor bugger. Oh, poor old Dingo, you'd have to process because he'd been, he'd been hanging on it for months too. Like, you know, who... Who's he behind? And, and then he has to actually play an active part in it, you know. Oh, it's hectic. like, he, he's got, what does he do, you know? Like, he's got to go out there and serve his heat. But, fuck, does he, you know, he's either way, whatever has happened, one of his mates is going to lose. Mm. So, well, he ended up beating uh, Mick. So how weird is yeah. that? That's just, yeah. uh, you know, he could have almost, if Joel had gotten through that heat, it would have been Dingo who handed him the world title. At the expense yeah. of his other best friend. Crazy, crazy stuff, Sean. And awesome to revisit, man. Jeez, I loved reading this one. So good. I um, yeah, it it was a it, it took me straight back to that time and um, far out, dude. We just got asked the other day, you know, is surf journalism dead. I was just going far out, not while surfing world's still going, mate. <laughs> well, we're still here, mate. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, no, that was yeah, it was funny. We were actually going back through scanning some old mags for the the 60th anniversary. And I went back through all of those as well, you know, the the 2009 stuff with Nick and Joel and that those stories and and then the 2012s as well, the, the, the when Joel finally got it. But um, yeah, mate, it's they were good times. They were, they were good for us, not so much for Joel. 2009. <laughs> <laughs> not in 2009. Ah, uh. uh, well, let's uh, let's let the crew have a listen. Thanks, Shauno. Cheers, Warno. See you, mate. Bye, mate.
how the world title is won and lost. The Joel Story by Sean Doughty. Joel Parkinson has collapsed on the floor of his shower, sobbing. His board lies outside the door, impaled on a garden stake. It's minutes since he lost the unlosable world title at Pipeline, the third time he's finished as the second best surfer in the world. He's poured so much of himself into this year that right now he simply wants to pour himself down the drain pipe and disappear somewhere dark and dank and lonely. Instead, he knows that in 20 minutes, not only does he have to face his family and friends who sit stony silent outside, but in front of a million eyeballs, he must carry the man who just beat him up the beach. Winning a world title was never going to be easy. Losing it to your best friend, however, would prove even harder. Big Groin Kira, March 11, 2009, 10.25am. Mick and Joel both know that whoever wins their semi will win the contest. It's Kira, after all. The wave that shaped their wet clay as kids. They're both sitting on the inside, mining eight-foot wash-throughs for double-up diamonds. In driving rain and sideways squall, Joel looks over at Mick. Fuck, how hard is this? Mick doesn't reply. I even smiled at him at one stage just to see if he'd cracked laughs, Joel. I got nothing. The two good mates haven't seen a lot of each other lately. Joel's gone to ground, that's why. He's training the house down, surfing down the coast. The bastard's fit and he's got an entourage. He's got a plan. His smiling eyes in the water have been replaced by a piercing avian stare. Previously possessing the work ethic of a koala bear, he's carrying himself like a guy who was fed up with being labelled the best server to never win a world title. In short, the Joel Parkinson of 2009 is displaying some remarkable similarities to the Mick Fanning of 2007. It's a heat for the ages. The pair trade nines and tens in the stormwater drains. Joel eventually wins with a near-perfect 19.93 from 20. Mick's not far behind. On the beach, Mick is smiling. How can you be disappointed after that? Joel wins the contest. He's not only the sentimental favourite to win the world title, he's now the bookie's favourite as well. Mick shows up at the Sands Hotel later that night to congratulate his mate. They hug, but Mick walks out soon after. The Mexican Bar, Jeffreys Bay, July 17, 8.50pm. Joel Parkinson is swinging from the rafters. He accidentally kicks a diner in the back of the head and knocks over a table of drinks. Two of his entourage are wrestling on the floor. Someone's burning hair. It's fair to say things have got a little sideways in the 24 hours since Joel won his third contest from five starts. It had started earlier at the Roadkill Diner where a plate of kudu, crocodile, ox and several other unfortunate beasts is being brought to the table Henry VIII style in celebration of the win. Beers are drunk. It's the halfway mark of the season and with a six-week break and a prodigious lead in the ratings, Joel has shucked himself from his rigid program for a night on the tiles. Joel never looked like losing at J-Bay. Just like his wins on the Gold Coast and at Bells, the better the waves get, the better he surfs. Assured, 
clinical but free-spirited Parco. His lines challenge the judges. The golden child, his bread and butter JS with the orange gold gradient spray, has now won him $120,000. The master of his domain, the world title is finally looming. People are giving it to him already. Nah, haven't looked at the rating sheet. Haven't looked at one world title scenario, he states, matter-of-factly at the time. For me, the world title is all the way to pipe. Anything's possible, and that's the way I'm thinking. He doesn't know how prophetic he's being. It's only a month, a long month later, when in a melancholy moment he confides, for sure I was feeling invincible after J-Bay. I was feeling untouchable. I was almost feeling too good. Chungu, Bali, August 10, 2.27pm. Underwater, I thought the worst. Between the noise my ankle made and the pain that shot up through my leg, I thought I had a big bone poking out of my skin. I thought I had a compound fracture for sure. The pain starts in his ankle and uses his shin bones as highways. As Luke Stedman carries him out of the water, Joel's only thinking of one thing. With a phalanx of cameras on the beach and in the water, he is there to stake his claim on the last section of Billabong's ensemble blockbuster, Still Filthy. They goad him to go bigger, and he does. Some mind-bending surfing goes down, but it was a bread-and-butter air reverse that did the damage. Joel lands it backwards in the flats, the tail of the board jarring violently on impact, jamming Joel's heel back up into the ankle joint, in turn spreading his tib and fib, tearing the ligaments between them. Joel gets the coveted final section of Still Filthy, but it comes at a huge cost. It wasn't till I got the MRI a week later that I realised how bad it was. I don't know what I'm looking at when I look at it, but the doctor goes, Hmm, Joel, this is pretty serious. I don't think you'll be surfing again this year. This is a screwable injury. Joel consults five specialists, all of whom concur. He finds a sixth who says that although unwise, he could probably keep surfing on it without surgery. There was no way I was getting it screwed, not in the position I was in. So I kept telling myself I was alright, that I was going to beat this. But it wasn't until I finally stood on my board that I went, Jesus, I can only surf 5% on this. Mentally I was thinking, I'm stronger than this. I'll strap it and it'll be fine. But I'd roll off my board in the shore break and I'd be sucking in big gulps of air because I was in so much pain. The story gets buried. Kelly is the threat and Joel doesn't want him getting wind of it. One of the few people who knows, however, is Mick. Before we went to Trestles, Joel rang me and we were talking about his ankle. He knew what I'd been through with my hamstring injury. And I said to him, Look, mate, you've got two roads to go down. You either sit Trestles out and go into Europe healthier or you do Trestles and try and scratch up a result. The closest anyone's going to get to you is still 700 points and that's still a massive lead. I wasn't in the game at all. I couldn't see it happening. For someone to beat Joel from that position, they'd have to get on an incredible roll. It was the last phone call between them for five months. Two weeks later, I meet Joel in the departure lounge of the Brisbane airport, en route to LAX. With Monica and the kids in tow, Joel limps to the gate wearing a moon boot and a grimace. Avenida Cabrillo, San Clemente, California. September 9, 8.25pm.
Joel's had one song in his head all year, Sunshine Reggae. Dustin Barker had put him and Ock onto it in Tahiti. Let the good vibes get a lot stronger. stronger. It's a very Parko kind of song, and it soon becomes his mantra. And whenever he starts getting edgy before heats, he says to himself, Settle down, Joel. Just listen to your reggae. Sunshine Reggae will, undoubtedly, become the theme song to his world title win. Sitting in his rented house before the Trestles event, we Google it out of curiosity. It buffers. Joel hits play and freezes in horror. Sunshine Reggae, which he assumed was sung by some badass Jamaicans, is in fact sung by two Danish guys. It's as white as reggae gets. He storms off. Two days later, he loses to wildcard Rob Machado after catching a winning wave a half second too late. His ankle is swollen and painful and not getting any better. The sunshine is fading. Stephen Bell's house, Les Bourdains, France, September 25, 9.25am. Joel and Mick are amongst two dozen Australians who have gathered to watch the Bulldogs-Eels League semi-final on Belly's TV. At halftime, they sit around his yard and talk. Mick recounts the story of he and Joel touring Ireland a few years back, searching for Mick's long-lost relatives. After a week of Guinness and potatoes as staples, Joel had taken two industrial laxatives to unblock the drains, and they'd taken effect at a gas station halfway down to Galway. Joel emerged 15 minutes later and is handed a beer as they drive off. He finished it and discovers another two and a half tablets floating in the bottom. In scatological detail, Mick recounts Joel's next three days and has everyone, including Joel, in hysterics. Mick is in good spirits. He's just won 100,000 clams at Trestles, and his unlucky year seems to have turned around. He's still a long way behind Joel, and not even he is entertaining world title dreams. I honestly thought it was done and dusted after J-Bay, says Mick. I went home after J-Bay, and I was sitting there, and I was going, far out, what have I got to do to win an event? I was surfing well. I was fit. I was doing everything right. I guess I just needed one more ingredient. Mick had found that ingredient two years earlier. What Joel was experiencing now, a world title campaign of all-consuming intensity, had almost killed Mick two years before. Like Gollum in the ring, that year twisted him into something that he wasn't. To tell you the truth, I was burnt out. It was fucked. The world title was great, but it came at a huge cost. I put so much into winning that year, and when it was all done and dusted, I saw how the people I cared for were affected. And I just sort of looked at it and realised it wasn't that much fun anymore. I didn't want to go back to that sort of thing ever again. I didn't feel like it was me. I wanted to put the family and my wife and my friends first and be like everyone else when they go to their job and they clock off at five. Even at the start of this year, I was still trying to reinvent myself around competition, go to dinner at night and not talk heat strategy. I feel like I've gotten to a point now where I can be wherever I am at that time and not be thinking I need to be somewhere else. That's a really good feeling. It took me a year to work it out, but as the year rolled out, I felt more and more comfortable in my own skin. Competitors area, Quicksilver Pro, Les Bourdains, France, September 26, 12.11pm. Joel Parkinson's ankle looks angry. The patches of bare skin between the strapping balloon turgidly. He somehow just lost to French wildcard Patrick Bevan. He stands alone at the back of the competitor's area and looks down at his foot. Fuck! Am I ever going to win this thing? Look at it! I was looking for answers by that stage, he recalls later. 
The weakest part of my surfing is small lefts, and with my shit ankle, I was in trouble. If we had little rights, I would have been fine, but small lefts are my weak point. They always have been. They always will be. Joel may have been able to hobble to a title on a bad ankle, but the injury, in league with the Atlantic Ocean in the doldrums, meant he was a sitting duck. Café de Paris, Hossegor, September 28, 1am. Dean Morrison is running up the main street of Hossegor, naked. He's leading the foot race with Mick Fanning and Mick's mate Kelso, a 250-pound asthmatic photographer. The crew are at the De Paris to celebrate Mick's second win in as many events. Joel's world title lead, 1,400 points just a month ago, has been whittled down to 146. Joel has been cajoled to come out, but it's not easy for him, not with Mick now challenging for what was rightfully his. In the midst of the chaos, Joel seeks Mick out and the pair sit down and talk. For the first time ever, it's a little awkward. We talked. We didn't get too deep, recalls Joel dismissively. We talked about how there's a pretty good chance the title is going to come back to Cooley now. How it's going to be him or me. Mick and Joel's friendship has always been spiced by the occasional life or death heat. Our rivalry goes back longer than Andy and Kelly's rivalry, says Joel. It goes back 15 years, but it's never been warfare. It has, however, forged two of the most competitive bastards you're ever likely to meet. The two have scrapped in club heats and tour finals. They surfed against each other for the World Junior title. Hell, even free surfs between these guys are pistols at 12 paces. But this was something else again. This was the biggest prize in surfing. Before I knew it, I was two wins deep and back in the game, says Mick. I didn't even think I was in the game until I won in France. Earlier in the year, before this thing came to life, Mick had stated that if it came to a world title, he wouldn't lay down for his mate. Fuck no, he wouldn't lie down for me. It's no different to being Kelly or Andy. I know Joel's not going to give me anything anyway. He's the most competitive prick I know. He's not going to give me anything, so I'll do the same right back. What goes around, comes around. These two have already experienced the personal divide that's created when you have something as powerful as a world title in front of two men. The first year I won the world title, I felt so distant from him, says Mick. And I've never told anyone this, but it actually hurt. All I wanted to do was sit down and talk with my friend, but I couldn't. I didn't ring him much this year because he was super focused and I didn't want to fuck with his game. There are definitely times when you just want to throw it all out the window and treat each other like you always have. Joel ghosted away, and the party raged on. I texted him and asked what he was doing. My phone beeped. Killing Mick Fanning. Mandaka Harbour, Basque Country, October 13, 3.37pm. There's nothing Monica Parkinson can say, so she doesn't say anything. She just cradles her husband's head and wordlessly strokes his hair. Minutes earlier, her husband had been bundled out of the Mundaka event by world number 41, Drew Courtney. Joel surfed with two cortisone needles in his ankle, but re-injured it, attempting to hold onto a backside turn. Mick is in the water when Joel loses. With a freshly shaven head, Mick hears the hooter sound and knows he's the new world number one. Joel's campaign, meanwhile, has hit a new low. Mentally, Joel has been tougher than boot leather all year, but he's starting to unstitch. It's heartbreaking to watch, and for it to be Mick of all people capitalising on it is tough for both of them. Damien Hobgood comes up to Joel later over dinner. 
If I told you at the end of last year that with two events to go, you'd be neck and neck for the world title, what would you think? That was the best thing anyone said to me all year, said Joel a week after. It's true. I would have given my left nut to be challenging for a world title. I've always wanted to go swinging at it, but I've never been close enough to swing. I've got to look forward and got to find a way out of this. Joel has driven north to a sports injury rehab clinic in Cabraton. His trainer, Wes Berg and I, are in Mundaka waiting for our flights, posted up at Los Topos Bar when the phone rings. It's Joel. I ask him what's up. Nothing. Just thought you might have something inspiring to tell me. He's laughing, and there are signs right there that the very thing that defines Joel Parkinson, the glass half full, might yet get him out of this. I've got to look at it as an opportunity, he said at the time. I don't want to look back and go, what a shocker, you idiot. At the start of the year, I said no matter what happens, win, lose or draw, I'm going to give it my all, give it everything I've got. Now, I have to stick by that. He goes to Portugal, and in the tour's first decent wave since J-Bay, he makes the semis, chalking up his fourth perfect 10 of the year, more than every other surfer combined. Mick, however, wins. It will go to pipe. But Mick is now the clear favourite. The Wave House, off the wall, December 6, 4.45pm. Monica Parkinson is taking a photo of her husband, with the sun setting behind Kayana Point in the background. Move to the left, Joel. I'm trying to get the green flash sunset. Her husband chimes in. You only get the green flash over the ocean. Monica, clearly annoyed, retorts, Oh, good on you, Mr. Sunset. Earlier that day, Joel Parkinson had won at Sunset for the third time. It not only immortalised him as one of the greats at one of surfing's most totemic arenas, but more importantly, it swings world title momentum back his way. He needs to make the semis at pipe and finish two places better than Mick. And the way he's surfing, you could easily see it happening. Everyone is talking about Joel. He's come to Hawaii with the aim of surfing himself out of the hole he finds himself in. He's blowing minds in free surfs, scores another 10 at Haleiwa, then beats Mick in the final at sunset. He surfs hard, and suddenly his fetlock isn't an issue. If I'm going to challenge a pipe, I need time in the water. You could say it's a chance of re-injuring the ankle, but you need to get in rhythm in Hawaiian waves. There's a risk doing the full season, but it's far riskier than not doing it. The days tick down. Mick and Joel are staying four doors apart at Off The Wall. Joel walks down the beach with Andy one morning and looks across. There's Mick, doing the same. Mick attempts to break the ice by heading over to Joel's the next morning. It was funny. I went over to say hello and they were in the middle of a training session. I'm like, um, shit, okay, I'll just wait over here. I wasn't trying to go over and psych out. I wasn't Kelly going over to Andy's place for a game of golf. I just wanted to go and see my mate and say hello. After they finished training, Joel and I actually sat down and we chatted for about an hour, which I think was good for both of us. It let us laugh about it finally. He hasn't been around to my place yet, though. He's snobbing me the prick. I asked Mick if he's going to tell Joel that he loves him before he paddles out a pipe, just as Kelly did to Andy before their 2003 showdown. I'm not going to tell him I love him. He already knows that. I'm not cupping his nuts before he paddles out. I asked Joel whether he's going to high-five Mick in the channel when he gets spat out of the barrel at pipe, a la Robin Kelly. High five him. I'll run the cunt over. Mid-air. 
somewhere above First Reef Pipeline, Hawaii, December 12, 2.15pm. I threw myself over the falls on that wave because I wanted to punish myself. It was over. I'd lost. My whole year flashed before my eyes as I was falling. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the wins, the losses, my ankle. And I come up and mix right there. Joel has just bombed first heat at pipe, gifting the title to Mick. He's in the water again for the moment when Mick wins the world title, as he was in 2007, but will excuse him for being somewhat less euphoric this time around. You know what? It was a relief more than anything, said Joel, of the moment he and Mick man-hugged. It was over. We sat there and looked at each other and said, fuck me, glad that's over, eh? Joel comes into a packed beach, yet no one approaches him as he hits the sand. They sense he needs space. The girls in Joel's backyard are crying. The guys are staring out to sea. He walks up into the backyard and heads straight around the side of the house. He dispatches his board to the afterworld before heading inside to the shower. I was shattered, he says morosely of the moment later on. Never really felt anything like it. When I first come in, I was hating the people who beat me. Then I started hating myself. Then I just started hating the world. Slumped in the shower, he knows Mick's heat ends in 20 minutes, and he knows he has to be there. He emerges with a beer, and one by one, his circle come over and offer words. Monica, Luke, Andy. Ock turns him around. Ock said you've got to be proud of everything, not just what you've accomplished this year, but of who you are. He was putting more of a spin on my life. He said I should be really proud of what I've done, not be down and depressed, but take pride in it and run with it. The hooter sounds, but Joel's still not sure. Losing the title to Mick and then carrying up the beach 20 minutes later was tough, but I knew it was the only right thing to do. It's exactly what Mick would be doing for me. There was a lot of emotion there, and it kind of put more of a smile on my face rather than sitting up in the house on my own feeling miserable. Carrying Mick, Dino had one side, I had the other. Dino's got about five yards up the beach and he goes, this is far enough, eh? And that's when I laughed. Him being there meant the world to me, said Mick the following day. Far out. I wouldn't have been pissed off if he didn't do it, but for him to walk down and do that, when I saw him there, he was the first person I gunned for. To have him and Dingo right there, without those two, I wouldn't be here talking about world titles. I feel for Joel. I can't imagine what he's feeling, but in saying that, I know he's got more in him. What Joel lost in silverware on the beach at Pipe, he made up for in respect. Joel's Place, Off the Wall, Hawaii, December 15, 10.30am. Mick and Joel are doing shots of silver Patron tequila. After nine months apart, they're close again. A little too close, it could be argued. Mick was in Joel's yard at 3am last night banging the leg of a store dummy against the fence to wake Joel up for a drink. The two are now buckled in laughter. They've just watched their good mate Dino accidentally pull on Damien Hobgood's leg rope to progress into the semis. They're reminiscing about the time years ago when Dino pulled Damon Harvey's leg rope in a club contest. They know he's got form. The eternal battle these two face is juggling the man and the machine, the party boy and the pro. Both learn some big lessons, and it will be a year that neither of them forget in a hurry. This year was fun as shit, says Mick, in a statement of the bleeding obvious. 
I wouldn't have been pissed off if I'd walked off the beach the other day and I hadn't won. I had the most amazing year and I learned so much, not only in surfing, but also in myself. I learned you can still be successful and have fun. Joel, meanwhile, has drawn from it. I know what I want and I know how to get it a little easier these days. It's not the be-all and end-all winning the world title this year. I blew it. I had an ankle injury. There's not much I could do about it. Next year, I'll be fit and healthy. And whatever happens this year, I'm going to want it just as bad next year. It's not the last world title I'll challenge for. Mixed place. Off the wall. The morning after. Above the front door, perched on a ledge, sits Joel's board. The one he lost the world title on. The one he beat the shit out of. It's Joel's world title present to Mick. I snapped the fins out of it, smashed it up some more, and threw it up there before I drove to the airport, laughs Joel. He can put it in his lounge room. Right next to the trophy. Sunshine, sunshine reggae.